the meat of the podcast. <laughs> Wait, have you ever have you ever caught your have you ever caught your profile reflection in the mirror? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Shit feel like I won't ever make it home Traffic's backed up, I got to get off of this road Flipped on the gas, I swear to God, I'm in my zone This is She's in Russia, I'm Lily, and I'm in St. Petersburg And I'm Smith, and I'm in Brooklyn Alright, let's get this puppy on the road, it's 10.30pm Okay I'm really excited to share this episode with you, dear listeners, because on this episode, we have not one, not 1.5, but two whole special guests, both who are going to speak with us on the topic of translation, specifically Russian and English, because they both translate primarily from Russian to English. So our first honored guest is Kevin Rothrock, who is the senior editor and translator of Medusa in English, which is the English language version of Medusa, an online independent news publication in Russia. And our second honored guest is Isaac Wheeler, who is a translator of both Russian and Ukrainian. And he translates primarily literary works into English. Let's dive in. Yeah, let's dive in. Maybe, Kevin, if you could just introduce yourself officially. Um, so that we have that. Sure. So officially, my name is Kevin Rothrock, and I am the lead translator and editor for the English edition of Medusa, which is a kind of hipster, cool, neat website um, that uh, that is sort of modeled on kind of BuzzFeed News, I think. But they don't they don't do like the kind of listicle stuff that you see on BuzzFeed proper. But I would say that the news coverage is similar. Um but it's, it's meant to appeal to sort of the next generation of news consumers in Russia. And I am the, the guy in charge of the English language edition. And so I spend most of my time translating their medium and long form reports. But then I also assemble a newsletter every morning, every weekday morning. And I won't be doing it tomorrow because it's Martin Luther King Jr. Day. But, um, but yeah, so that, that's, that's like, usually I'll find like, I don't know, maybe six or seven stories that capture kind of the like most interesting or important news that has happened in Russia, basically in the, in the 24 hours since I've written the last newsletter. And I would say that it focuses mostly on kind of this is, and this is true of English Medusa's coverage in general is that we focus mostly on kind of cultural and political stories. We don't, I don't, I mean, if there's something really important happening in terms of like finance or economics, we'll cover that as well, just because it seems so you know important. But I don't think that's really our big focus because there are uh, a lot of people already working on that. That's one of the areas in journalism that is still quite lucrative, and because you know there's money at stake, and so that's not really this. Those are not necessarily the stories that we're going to focus on, at least that that I'm going to put you know my efforts into. So we we've referenced Medusa like a fair amount on the show, but it, you've described kind of like what it is in relation to American media. Could you just explain like where it stands on the ideological spectrum within Russia and how it compares to other media outlets? Yeah, so I mean the 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 project got started a few years ago and it was it, when it first started, it was basically brought together by Galina Timchenko, who was the former chief editor of this very popular website called Lenta.ru. And it's still a very popular news website. But she got forced out in what was effectively a sort of political scandal where the website, it, it basically was in danger of losing its media license because it it sort of didn't play ball with um, with what the the rules, the unspoken rules of, the, of reporting in Russia are, pl- the political rules, I mean. And I think the final straw was, if I'm remembering correctly, it was a story that included a hyperlink to some kind of uh, extremist, so-called extremist materials relating to Ukrainian nationalists or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so the chief editor was forced out when, when that happened. And then a, the lion's share of the newsroom resigned in protest. And so many months later, 
they all reassembled, or not all of them, but a, a good number of them reassembled in Riga, Latvia, to create this new website called Medusa. And um, the, the you know obviously the decision to relocate to Riga was, I mean the whole the entire reason for doing that was to get outside of Russian legal jurisdiction so that you know they can't have their newsroom raided, and um, and so politically speaking, you know that that genesis of the website obviously gives it a I mean it gives it a reputation for being you know oppositionist I suppose but I don't that's not how. Medusa sees itself, at least when you talk to the people running the actual project, they see themselves as independent journalists. And so they would, they would not embrace the idea that they are oppositionists. And so they're not out, they don't, their content is not like something you'd find on Kasparov.ru or some kind of, or, or even Granyi.ru. Like literally, those are literally oppositionist websites where all they essentially do is collect news that's meant to show you know, how bad the Kremlin regime is and, and collect op-eds about how bad the regime is. And Medusa doesn't really, they don't even have an op-ed um, page. There's no, and, and they only come out with editorials fairly rarely when there's some kind of major arrest or something like that. And, you know, you can read those editorials. We, tra- we I think I try to translate all of them. And so we can go back over the last few years and even read them in English. And you'll see that, you know, there's generally a kind of... Uh, liberal skew to those editorials, but I, the, the long form reporting and so on, I would describe as an effort at independent journalism where, you know, you're looking for voices and perspectives that are not generally empowered. So Medusa's, I would say they've led the way, um, with some competition from maybe Nova Gazeta, but I still think when it comes to, um, some of the more interesting LGBT stories, um, and, and women's rights issues as well, Medusa and Nova Gazeta are both kind of leading the way and doing these long form reports where you're, you're covering issues and, and perspectives that are just that are, are, are kind of threatened and, and persecuted in Russia. And so that that kind of coverage in general, it's going to rub lots of people the wrong way. It's going to make I mean, especially the LGBT stuff, I would say that a lot of people probably look at Medusa as just like a place where journalists cover all the weirdos. And, and and occasionally write an editorial that's unkind to the to the establishment, and so people are going to be dismissive of that. But but I think it's it's you know if you're not doing reporting on market trends, then this is the best kind of journalism you can be doing. I'm curious about how you gather content on a daily basis, which you already touched on a bit, and the relationship between Medusa, what you're just talking about, the Russian language version, and then like Medusa in English, what you're the lead editor of, like the relationship between those two in terms of content, is it like you literally just pick and choose what to translate and translate it yourself? And if you do, what's like the principle by which you choose? Because obviously you can't do everything. Or do you have people reporting for you in English? And like, where are they? And yeah, how does that work? So we don't have anybody reporting for us in English. It's just, the, I mean, really, like, on a day-to-day level, it is just me, like, 10 hours a day translating. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'll spend, like, two to three hours on the newsletter every morning. I wake up at, like, 4.30 and try to get it out in time for all the, you know, suit-wearing New York and D.C. people to have it in their inbox by the time they're at their desk or whatever. And then the rest of the day is me working on a long form translation the longest ones i've done i think are 11 or 12,000 words and i'll spend you know like 2 or 3 weeks doing working on those and then if there are pressing sort of shorter medium form reports because Medusa is a lot of this sort of explanatory journalism where it's not mm-hmm. you know it's not a journalist who went out into the field and talked to people it'll it'll be you know like a bullet pointed mm, 2,000 word story or you know 1,500 word story where it's like this happened, you know, what do we know about it? What do we not know about it? What do we expect to know about it? And that's just an example. But things like that I will do as they break if it seems like um, it's important news. And again, like I keep saying like if it's important, if it will you know, resonate with readers. And it's, there's, no, there's not any science behind that. It's literally just me kind of like guessing at what people will want to read about. I'm you know, plugged into Twitter more than would be healthy. <laughs> um, and so I'm tracking what people are tweeting about in Russian and in English. And I've got all these lists that are supposed to give me some kind of sense 
of where the zeitgeist is headed for any particular day. And basically, I'm just racing against what seems to be important to people and what I anticipate would be important, you know, in an hour or whenever I think I could finish the translation. The long form reports, generally, there's the kind of value of the reporting is so inherent that it's not like it won't be useful to read, you know, two hours later. If I finish it in a week, it'll be just as useful as it as it is now. Medusa has this correspondent named Daniel Turovsky, who's done several really great stories in the last few years. And he wrote one um, about Novocherkask, the 1962 massacre that was covered up by the Soviet officials. And it was like 12,000 words, I think, when I was done in English. I don't remember how many it was in Russian. But uh, it took me a long time to do. It wasn't like if I'd finished it three days earlier, it would have been more useful to readers. It was just, it stood on its own. And so I could take a little bit of time trying to get it right. When I'm translating these long form stories, especially, they often get into some kind of like niche, I don't know, profession or historical event. And the vocabulary will suddenly become something where I'm not familiar with it. And sometimes there's a lot of dialogue and interviews where people are speaking in colloquialisms that I just don't know what they are. And I have I have a massive array of like online techniques to try to like decode some of these things. And I have a solid like dozen different people that I cycle through native speakers where I cycle through asking them for help. So I don't go to one person every time and annoy them too much. Even still, sometimes I will end up having to read about a subject in Russian and in English just to get a sense of like what the context is. I've gotten to a point where, where I can, for the most part, understand everything I'm reading, but there's, you know, there's all these turns of phrase and there are multiple, multiple ways to interpret certain phrases and words where I can get to a point where anything I'm looking at, I know what I'm reading, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I know the proper translation given that the context can twist it in different directions. And so I'll have to sit here. I mean, a lot of times I'll be translating something and I'll burn through a thousand words in like, you know, an hour or two. And it's feeling like easy peasy, this translation is going great. And then I'll get to like a sentence or a paragraph where suddenly I just, that I can tell there's some subtlety here that I'm missing in the first sort of look at it. And I'll have to spend an hour or two just working on that because I'll have to read about what the context is because they're making they're, this is some offhand comment about this person and i'll have to go and find out that that person was arrested for this but then he was let go on parole and that you know just it, you have to dig deep to understand what the nuances are of like a particular f- phrase and that's this is how i do it maybe there are better translators out there that they can pick it up you know instantly but that's how i have to do it so i'm curious like about this question of translating in the context of you know like the semi-recent Russia fervor. Have you noticed like a shift in the way you balance this like meaning versus literal when you're translating since you've come to be in this context where like mainstream American liberal is is pretty Russia phobic? I think that comes more into play when I'm selecting the stories I'm going to translate and especially when I'm crafting the headlines because the headlines I write are almost always I don't I almost never translate the headlines. I usually write them entirely on my own. And uh, usually when I'm doing that, I think I'm more conscious of like, okay, well, how's like, how will the politicized American climate kind of receive this, this headline? And one thing I like to do, um, and this is something I've done since even before kind of like modern day Russophobia or whatever, but I like to have the headline imply that the story will be biased in one way and then have the, and then, but then have the story actually not be biased, but kind of be from the opposite perspective so that so that you get people clicking on the story thinking thinking they'll get one thing and then getting the opposite. And so I think that's that's a fun kind of tactic, if only for me. Maybe I'm the only one who enjoys that. But I, I, there's nothing I love more than doing a story that's like essentially all about, let's say, like, you know, how rotten, I don't know, like the Duma is. And then having the headline sound as though this is going to be a story talking about Duma heroics or something like that. And so then once you read it, you realize that the headline was sort of sarcastic. And so that's that's my that's what I like to do. Does Medusa have a concrete idea or approach to anti-Russian sentiment in American media or do they just say like oh we're going to continue doing what we're doing and like that affects us not that much so i don't think that they're super affected by it because i mean their audience they're they're worried about their you know appealing to russian readers because that's where 
99% of their time and resources are directed. I was told to, you know, translate their best stuff, obviously, make it available to the world or to the, you know, the English speaking world. And the relationship with our readers, it should be to invite their their love and affection, but to also keep them angry and or not angry necessarily, but kind of like agitated and, and kind of not necessarily comfortable. They shouldn't, you know, know what to expect. Nothing should seem kind of canned. And so that's why I guess I, I try to select things that will challenge sort of, you know, their, their uh, presuppositions or, or um, tease them with headlines and with social media promotions. In terms of the rustophobia and so on, I think the main newsroom doesn't have to deal with that. They're kind of happily outside of that. That doesn't really affect their day-to-day work. And then when it comes to the stuff that I do with the English desk, it hasn't been as bad recently. When there was content about uh, Ukraine, the stuff with Ukraine has been the worst, but then there's also Mm -hmm. been, by worst I mean like the most kind of divisive or polemical, Um, then also some of the reports that have come out on um, information war and that kind of thing. And in fact, the the biggest sort of uh, issue that I've had was, um, it was last sometime last year, this was entirely my initiative. I take full responsibility for it. I tried to come up, I did come up with an infographic that compared the budgets for RT and the BBG, the uh, Broadcasting Board of Governors, which is the funding organization for uh, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and Voice of America, and a bunch of other U.S. government media outlets. I took their stated funding from the BBG's published budget, and I compared it in a graph to the budget line for RT okay. um, from the you know the Russian published budget. And then I counted all of their Facebook channels for the different BBG outlets and for RT and compared that. And they also compared the languages that they report and broadcast in. So it was meant to be this comparison of here's what they spend, here's what they get in these very vague metrics. And in my mind, what I was showing was, uh, hey, the Russians spend almost as much or if not more I have to I don't remember to be honest right now but it's like roughly the same as um as I think it was actually quite a bit more at least compared to like independently RFERL and VOA and they and what they get is significantly less like their Facebook followers overall are not as much as all the different RFERL outlets because RFERL has so many different language out, outlets it's it's insane and that was another thing is that they report in so many different languages so they just reach more people, essentially, or they're capable of it, at least. And there was such strong backlash to this. I was, I mean, it was, it was nasty. And um, I had people at RFERL, you know, telling me I had done terrible things. There are definitely flaws with the graphic. For instance, like the, you know, RT is spending a lot of that money in Moscow where you have to spend less per employee. And so you could field more people because you don't have to buy them healthcare and all this other stuff. So there's, there's all kinds of problems with it. But people didn't even get the premise of what I was going for. My premise was supposed to be they're not getting as much for their for all their spending. The reason they hated the graph so much was because the title of it was comparing American and Russian propaganda, but I oh. put propaganda I put but but I put propaganda in, in scare quotes. It was intended to be like, you know, I'm not calling it propaganda, they are. <laughs> um, and it, so anyway, but like but the, the, the people hated it. Although I will say that the Senate just put out a some kind of big study on like Putin and all the bad things he does around the world. They actually use Putin's name in the title of this of the report, which I thought was strange. It's like, why don't you just put Moscow or the Kremlin? Like, why personalize it? But that's I guess that's the whole point of the report. But they cited this graphic, which I thought oh was hilarious God. because it's like, guys, like you guys are, are going off off the page here because you don't don't you know that the, the consensus is supposed to be that was a bad study. But I think they cited it as an example of how far reaching RT's you know, social media audience was. But if in the in the comparison, it was that they had less of a reach than the BBG outlets. But I don't know. It turns out that I never want to work with statistics or, or infographics <laughs> ever again because Whatever, whatever you think they're going to tell people, they'll, they'll run with it in whatever direction they want to. Dangerous ambiguity. Oh my god. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't know it was going to be like that, but that's that's how it ended up. Yeah. So that was that's that was my biggest brush with like a U.S. Russian kind of like politicization. I have written a few things for Medusa that kind of approach 
editorial tone, I suppose. I mean, I'm sure that like if you were a true blue you know, info warrior who who is just waiting for Trump's impeachment because of you know because he takes orders from Putin, where you know in an earpiece that he wears all the time, something like that. <laughs> like if you were of that persuasion, then the stuff I've written on occasion comes off as like you know Putin apologetics or something like that. Okay, I I kind of wanted to sort of switch gears, but it's actually just the same topic. I want to talk about the caution piece. Yeah. Oleg Kashin wrote a piece in November 2017 about basically like the crisis of faith amongst Russian readers, the crisis of faith in American media, how American media covers Russia or has been covering Russia for the past year and a half or so. So yeah, so he wrote a piece on that, which you then both translated and summarized on your podcast maybe you could do a a really brief summary of what was there other than what I just said and then like give your take on it a little bit yeah so what I remember of it because it was a while ago (laughs) um, but what was that his the central thing he was saying was that Russian journalists used to hold up American journalism as a sort of ideal and Russian journalists are always kind of working with this knowledge that they're in an imperfect system with all these constraints. But if they lived in a free society, then what they could accomplish would be the sort of thing you see American journalists doing. And now that they're, now that the American journalists are talking about Russia, as opposed to things that Russian journalists presumably did not know about, there's been this realization that, Oh, the American journalists are just as polemicized and political as the Russian journalists are. And it's, just, it's also just a bunch of interest jockeying and bad reporting that, that we, we are familiar with. And so it's, it's caution explained it as sort of the sky falling and the constellations be, turning out to be fake and so on. And so it was this like loss of goal or, or a, a perfect ideal. And that, that the repercussions of that will be important for where Russian journalism goes from here. Because it turns out that the cynics were right at least that's how he puts it. The cynics, for the most part, are the kind of regime-friendly journalists who have always said, oh, you know, they're pursuing the, their government's interests just like we are, and we're all the same, and there's kind of no greater struggle for truth or anything like that. And that's what journalism is. And so Kashin's piece essentially suggested that the explosion of bad reporting on Russia, as he describes it, has been disillusioning to Russian journalists. And it's handed this sort of major cultural victory to the kind of pro-government reporters. And, you know, he finishes essentially saying, you know, and who, we don't know where that's going to take Russian journalism and by extension, Russian civil society, I think. Because another th- interesting thing about Russian journalists, I would say, is that uh, you get a lot of sort of semi-politicians and semi-activists who are also involved in journalism. And so... Typically, when you think about the elite and the intelligentsia, you're often talking about journalists, essentially. And so if they're disillusioned, it's fair, I think, to say that that will affect the vector of, you know, larger civic developments. And so I think that was the sort of alarm flag that he was raising. It got a very nice response among American journalists, for one thing, which is kind of funny. (laughs) But uh, because I would say that there are a lot of American journalists with like a history of reporting either from Russia or about Russia, or they've done reporting on Russia since. And they are aware that there have been sort of excesses in the reports on Russiagate. Or even if they don't think that, then they're still interested in opinions about that from Russia. And so when when Caution's piece became available in English, the way people shared it, I noticed, was it was, you know, some people would say, well, this here's here's the rebuke from a prominent Russian columnist. And that means that, yes, Americans have gone too far. Or some people shared it and said, here's an example of how Russians are so clueless. Um, but look at how convinced he is that, you know, our good reporting on Russia is actually, you know, phony baloney. And that's just because they're actually, you know, the Russian liberals are actually even more, Kashin's not really a liberal, but the Russian, you know, independent reporters are brainwashed in ways that, you know, that we couldn't even dream of. And so in that, in that sense, I think it's that there's some people I think shared it as like, you know, look at this ignorant fool. It turns out that, you know, that Putin has embedded himself even in his, in the minds of his opponents. And so I, I, some people looked at it that way. It was, it was a mixed bag. It's just like with the infographic, you, you know, you do, you translate something that to you sends a very clear message 
And, you know, you can disagree with it or not, but it's fairly clear. And then you share it and then people take a real strong interest in it. You think, oh, wow, this is great. I've, you know, contributed to the dialogue. And then you look at the content of the dialogue and it's like, that's what they're saying about it? Like, geez, <laughs> man, why am I even bothering? Like, <laughs> incurable, these, these uh, perspectives. Kevin, do you want to like plug your different things that you do and like where to follow you, et cetera? Internet. I am on the internet. I'm, I'm, on, I'm online. People who also have the internet can find <laughs> me there too. And um, so the first thing is just please, you know, check, check out uh, Medusa's English site. And it's just medusa.io backslash en. But if you just Google Medusa with a Z, it should come up. And then on Twitter, my, I'm just, my, it's just my name, Kevin Rothrock. R-O-T-H-R-O-C-K. And it's just all one word. And I'm there and, you know, tweeting up storms all day long, mostly. And and then I, ha- I do have a podcast of my own that I, I've kind of like been toying around with. And it's called The Russia Guy. And you can find a link in my Twitter profile. And I, I, I kind of have fluctuated between summarizing stories, mostly the ones that come out in Medusa and sort of offering some of my own thoughts about them and I've also started interviewing, I've interviewed a few people that work in the Russia sort of expertise profession. And I'm going to try to do more of that because I, if anything, it's more, it's more for me than anybody else. I'm just, I'm doing it for myself and assuming there are other people out there like me that might also enjoy it. But there's so many people who have come to work on Russia specifically from so many different walks of life with like no formal, I mean, they have formal education, obviously, but it's not as though, like the people I've talked to, there's like a cybersecurity, cybercrimes expert. There is a think tank expert who's writing a book now on disinformation. And then there's um, somebody who works at Bellingcat who does open source research. And none of those people, you know, went to school for the program where that's the job you get. You know, they, everyone kind of found their way to it. And the same is true of me. I didn't go to school to become a translator or an editor or a news aggregator you know i didn't that wasn't like on my in in my uh on my plan or whatever and so it's just been really fun to talk to some people to find out how they found their way to to that we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we'll be talking to isaac wheeler introduce yourself sure i'm isaac wheeler i'm a translator of russian and ukrainian literature Uh, my greatest hits so far have been my translations of serhii jadan who's a very highly regarded contemporary ukrainian writer i'd say ukraine's great living writer myself he's a prose writer and a poet my co-translator, Riley Costigan-Humes, and I translated his novel, Vereshilovgrad, and that came out through Deep Vellum, which is a little publishing house down in Texas that only does translated literature. And our next translation with Verlana Tkach and Wanda Phipps is Mesopotamia, which is a combination of related short stories and poetry that's coming out in about two months from now through Yale University Press. I just want to give people some context on another episode of She's in Russia. <laughs> we did a couple of readings of your work, of Isaac's work, and also a piece that was co-translated by Isaac and Riley Costigan-Humes, who he just mentioned. One is a short story called 13 that is already published, 
and the other is an excerpt from a novel called The Gardener is Gone. But both of the readings are on our Russian Reading Rainbow episode. So I thought a good place to start might be just talking through what exactly it is that a translator does, because that's not at all self-evident from the perspective of someone who's interested in translation but hasn't done it, and it's also a contentious issue uh, among translators. It's a it's a hotly debated theoretical question. That seems good. Yeah. So uh, the the most common question I get asked as a translator is whether I favor free or literal translation, and that's a, a perfectly reasonable question on the face of it, but. The uh, the one takeaway I'd like to leave your listeners with today is that that isn't really a meaningful distinction when you get into the nitty-gritty of translation, because it isn't really possible to do a fully literal translation. I don't think people know what you mean necessarily by literal versus free. So this is a, this is an interesting question because what I'm trying to do is uh, dismantle this distinction. But yeah, I do have to <laughs> assemble it first. That's uh, that's entirely fair. So the uh, typical distinction people make would be between free and literal translation, in which a literal translation would just be closer to transcribing than translation. That it's one simply directly reproduces what the original says in the target language, whereas a free translation is one where the translator allows themselves a certain degree of license when it comes to approaching the original and doesn't necessarily reproduce it word for word, as one would say in this paradigm. You're kind of saying that it's a false dichotomy because it's nearly impossible to translate something without meaning. Well... I'm saying that it's a false dichotomy because the idea of a fully literal translation is sort of a straw man. Rachel May said a translator can never use that's what it says in the original as an excuse because what it says in the original isn't in English. So rather than a literal versus free dichotomy, the way I think about translation is a translator can either work for the author or work for the reader. So the best example of this that I've ever heard was a comparison of a young Nabokov and an old Nabokov both wearing the translator hat. In his youth, he translated Alice in Wonderland and produced what is arguably the best Russian translation of that text that anyone's ever produced. Uh, to give you an idea of the level of cultural translation he achieves, the mouse in Alice in Wonderland is a French mouse who was left behind when Napoleon's army retreated from Russia. I mean, it's just it's just a joy to read. And then the old Nabokov produced his translation of Pushkin's Yevgeny Onegin, or, or Eugene Onegin, which is an infamously unreadable translation. It's not without value to scholars, but it is generally without value to readers because he goes so deep into the well of English trying to reproduce what the original text does that he uses lexical resources in English that the average reader, even a highly educated average reader, has zero access to. So you go from the famously lucid, readable, accessible Pushkin to this impacted, impenetrable matrix of Old English roots and odd grammatical constructions that aren't used in common day speech anymore. He's taken a diamond and compressed it into coal somehow. He's done something <laughs> truly perverse. <laughs> So when you're translating, how does this paradigm apply to your work? In my work, it applies because I constantly remind myself that it's the reader who I work for when I translate, not the author and not the publisher and not myself. The person that I have to be most actively empathizing with when I translate 
is the reader because my goal is to produce a text that will give the reader the same experience of my translation that a reader of the original would have of the original text. Oh, that sounds so difficult. He's <laughs> uh, like, how do you gauge that? The way I sometimes describe translation is it's a headache that I want to have. The real problem is to think of the text as sort of undetonated or unactivated or unused until the reader's consciousness gets involved, I think. I think of it as designing something to be used in the way that one might uh, design the interior of a house or design some sort of uh, object for everyday use. You, know, you think of something like uh, a coffee mug needs to have... Uh, this is just what's what's on my desk, so it's the example I'm using. A coffee mug needs to have a handle that keeps the user's fingers away from the hot liquid. The interaction that the user is going to have with this artifact you're designing is part of the design. There's a, a term that's used by designers of everyday things called an affordance. So an example would be a handle on a door will be designed in such a way that it reveals whether you should grab it and pull or put your hand out and push just because of how it's shaped. It's much more natural to grab a protruding hook-shaped handle than it is to push on it. So your door can tell readers how it's meant to be used just because of the kind of interface it offers. Could you talk about the user experience concept, you know, like the, the design concept as it relates to a specific example? Is that, could you do that like on the fly? I'd, I'd say that the, uh, in the Geneva story that you guys read on your podcast, the user experience question comes up in terms of a very common experience for Russian translators, which is uh, needing to identify what the thrust of a particular sentence is, what the logical or argumentative thrust that the reader is meant to experience is, you know, what is the sentence meant to inform the reader of or persuade the reader of, because... It's often not self-evident what that is if one simply preserves the semantic content. The most striking example in Geneva, I think, is actually the very last line when uh, the rescuers have found the marshutka, the van taxi, at the bottom of the mountain pass with all the passengers dead. We have, How many died? someone asked, looking into the abyss with concern. All of them, came the response. Thirteen people. These vans are usually full, after all. So there's nothing in the Russian that says these vans are usually full. The Russian just says, thirteen, as usual, for a marshutka. Hmm. But to the English reader, that is not a meaningful utterance. The logical thrust of that is that the thirteen is the maximum capacity of one of these vans and it was full. Right. But that's more obvious to the Russian reader who's familiar with these things than it is for the English reader who may be experiencing it for the first time. I mean, the, the whole idea of a marshutka is not an idea that we have in English, so it's already a little bit more remote from the lived experience of the English reader. How do you refer to the van in, in the translation? You call it a gazelle, which is the the brand, right? The make? Yes, I refer to it by the make or I say the van because referring to its function as a marshutka would be extremely unwieldy. This is an idea that we don't have in English and can't express efficiently. So instead, I drop a few phrases like uh, proceeding along its normal route or something along those lines. I see. Okay. And in the Russian text of 13, Geneva uses marshutka? Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. So just for people who don't know, marshutka is a 
marshrut means route, the word, and marshrutka is like a diminutive of the word for route. It's also translated sometimes as minibus, but it's this semi-private, semi-public type of transportation. Yeah, it's like smaller, well, 13 people can fit in it, but actually more than that. You really <laughs> stuff those things full. It's like a white sort of mid-sized vans. They have a particular route. Well, it's, it's not a piece of municipal transportation, but it runs along the same route as a city bus would generally. Right, generally. Or they have their own routes, but they have a set route, but you can get off anywhere you want. That's another part of it. You could like be like, I want to get off here and they'll stop. Or, or you can get on anywhere you want along the route. So it's, there's no stops like a bus or a tram would have a, a stop. When you first arrive in Russia, it's a little bit intimidating to use one because of the amount of active interaction required to get one to take you where you want to go as opposed <laughs> to a city bus or the metro. Exactly. I mean, I remember serious, like, really paralyzing fear of that. Like, I, really, I didn't want to get on a marshutka because I didn't want to have to explain where I wanted to get off. <laughs> Which all you have, it's like, it's really funny to think of because all you have to do is ask for the, you have to just say stop, please. <laughs> yeah, no, I remember having a conversation with, oh, this was with, uh, with Riley, in fact, who'd been in Russia longer than I had when I first arrived. And he said, I just, what's, what's so intimidating about saying Obstanovka Pajalsta? Why, why is this just terrifying to you? And it's just, ah, uh, you will, you will never understand unless you stood in my shoes. And then a month <laughs> later, it was transparently obvious to me that there was nothing to worry about, about using one. But it's not everyone I've talked to when they first arrive in Russia gets cold feet about these things. <laughs> Yeah, it is. I don't know why. It's just like, actually, in fact, my like international program people at Smolny, I remember them telling me, telling us also not to use marshutkas because they were like going to be too confusing for us or something, which is just <laughs> wrong. Like they should have let us struggle through. That only for sure added to my anxieties. Anyway, <laughs> that's a good example so, of why you can't explain Marshutka in like two words. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Think about how long that just took us. So if every single time the van that's driving us through this story was referred to, I needed a paragraph of text explaining what it was, the reader would be completely benighted. I'm just personally really interested in how the translation of poetry is possible. You shared an example with me. So could you could you just like bring us into the poem? Absolutely. And it's, uh, I think a poem is the perfect material to use for this kind of context because we've been talking about how a translator guides a reader through an experience or provides a context in which the reader can autonomously explore an experience. I think a poem is a better test tube for that than discrete moments in a story could ever be because a poem is the smallest unit of text that can give you a complete experience. So how about I read my translation of the poem in full and then we can talk through uh, difficult moments in it. That sounds good. So this is a poem. <laughs> I... Uh, this is just what I woke up next to the morning of this podcast, and it's it's a happy coincidence that it's perfectly suited. This is a poem by great contemporary Russian poet Alexei Porvin. Uh, I've translated several of his poems and uh, co-translated some prose poems by Stanislas Nitko with him as well. He's a great poet and quite a guy. Birds are scattered by a shot. Matter awakens with this cloud, and speaks solely by trembling, trembling possessing the species that surpasses silence. So if all the people's specious specular exertions add up to something other than cumulative darkness, then happiness still will not betray its native nest. The bullet shatters the soul-intact birch, sealing up a crack in the forest chaos, and squashing itself flat as the earth at the dawn of the mind. Reconciliation a piece of metal, is peopled with shining souls. Their sum is the sight of all the substance that shakes off sleep. So this is a poem that presented serious challenges for me as a translator and required me to make some 
quite bold decisions in terms of departures from the actual semantic architecture of the original. The most pronounced one would be in the first stanza where we have the species that surpasses silence. The word that I'm translating as species there is vid, which is a word that's rich in wordplay in the original because it can mean both species or category on the one hand and view in the sense of landscape or viewshed on the other. Mm. So landscape in the sense of a landscape defined by an observer in the way that a landscape in a portrait is. You have a observer with a defined point of view who is seeing a landscape and thereby constituting it, that sort of landscape. In extreme circumstances, I've resorted to translating this as viewshed. So the problem here was it was impossible to have one word in English that would convey both of the nuances of this word in the original. I like to think of uh, a word in a poem as like a quantum object rather than a Newtonian object. If you look at an atom on a quantum level, you have a, a hard nucleus of protons and neutrons, and then you have a cloud of electrons, which isn't where the electrons are, but where they might be. It's a, it's a probabilistic cloud. It's a zone in which you might at any moment find any of the electrons. And on the quantum level of reality, in some way that I can barely wrap my head around, electrons sort of already are everywhere they might be. I think of a word in a literary text like that. It has valences. It has positions that it might occupy and therefore already occupies to some extent because the leap from one position to another, the quantum leap that doesn't cross the space in between is the cognitive leap that the reader's mind can make. But here I found myself in a situation where I need to put this electron in an English atom that has a different configuration of protons and neutrons and a different cloud. So what am I to do? What I did was I draw on the etymological resources that English offers. So if you look at the, uh, the first line of the second stanza, so if all the people's specious specular exertions, the word specious is, uh, is not representative of a word in the original. The original just has the visual efforts or visual exertions. And I had actually initially translated that as ocular exertions or visual exertions. But when I realized the need to preserve this wordplay, I changed it to specious specular exertions because species and specious have the same Latin root and the alliteration links specious and specular because they both have that same initial SP sound. So I used etymology and alliteration to bridge these two ideas in English that are already bridged in Russian by the wordplay. That's very cool. Very cool. Yeah, I see. Yeah. Wow. So the other uh, major departure that I can point to is in the, the third stanza. The bullet shatters the soul intact birch, sealing up a crack in the forest chaos and squashing itself flat as the earth at the dawn of the mind. So if you look at the Russian stanza, if you were to plug that into Google Translate, for example, or to do a completely literal translation of it that wasn't designed to give you an aesthetic experience, but was just designed to be a sort of circuit diagram of the semantics of the original, you'd get something like, the bullet sealed up in the birch a crack of intactness and itself got squashed, became flat as earth at dawn of mind. The problem here is this heartbreakingly beautiful Russian phrase that Alexei has produced, the crack of intactness. The genitive in Russian is doing semantic work here 
that the word of in English doesn't do. Crack of intactness doesn't produce the same effect that the original is producing. The paradox of a crack of intactness, uh, a, a, a flaw of flawlessness, what this is indicating on an empirical level is there's, there's one tree, one birch among the others that is completely pristine, and by being completely pristine among these other birches that are not pristine, it's an outlier. So as an outlier, it's like a crack or a flaw. So I had to depart from the circuit diagram of the original to make this work. The bullet shatters the soul intact birch, sealing up a crack in the forest chaos. There is no word chaos in the Russian. But mm. the paradoxical experience of destruction restoring unity to this vid, this viewshed, is an experience that I had to reproduce using the tools of English rather than the tools of Russian. It was a, a machine that had to be reverse engineered. Do you want people to be able to find you online who are listening or no? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so why don't you go ahead and tell our listeners where they can find you, yeah, or anything else that you would you would like to sign off with, of course. If you'd like to hear more conversations about this, I can direct you to my own podcast. If you go to soundcloud.com slash blackboxpoetry, all one word, you can find me and two colleagues of mine discussing poetry. And in fact, our most recent episode, the one entitled Short Poems, begins with a comparison of three different translations of one haiku. So if you want to jump straight from translation in this context to translation through the lens of poetry per se, I can recommend that. That's the episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at She's in Russia. Subscribe and rate us wherever you find your podcasts. If you have a question about Russia, call us at plus one three four seven two nine two seven one two six and leave a voice message. You won't have to talk to anybody. And if you are a non-U.S. based caller and you don't want to spend the big bucks, if you're not, we're getting something lined up in the next few weeks so that you'll be able to call in and leave a message as well. While you're on our website at she'sinrussia.com, subscribe to our monthly image-based newsletter. And also follow me on Arena. My name is Smith Freeman, and you spell Arena, A-R-E dot N-A. And we post images, music, videos, and related content for each episode we make. And we will see you next week. The tone of like the collusion stuff suggests that you know trump was recruited decades ago as a sleeper agent to like become president <laughs> one day because you know because maybe he like hired some women to pee on a bed i don't know it's just like it, it's <laughs> so i i i don't i don't think i don't think i have the mind of a columnist <laughs>